This is a bonus episode of the Lady Science Podcast. I'm Layla McNeil and one of the regular hosts of the podcast and one of the editors-in-chief of Lady Science Magazine. This bonus episode is the first in a series of interviews with women scientists from a variety of fields who will be talking about how feminism shapes the work that they do. To kick off our series, I'll be talking with Zuleika Zuvalos, a sociologist from Australia, about the history of sociology, how the work of indigenous and minority sociologists is changing the field, and how intersectional feminism influences her work. So without further ado, I'll let Zuleika introduce herself. Yep. So my name's Zuleika Zavalos. I'm a sociologist and I've got a PhD in sociology. Uh, so I uh, started off doing research on the intersections of identity for migrant background women. Um, and I was really interested in how their experiences of gender, sexuality, ethnicity, um, and also religion um, made their sense of identity and how that also interconnected with their experiences of racism and multiculturalism and how all of that affected their sense of belonging to their communities as well as uh, broader Australian society. Uh, after I finished my PhD, I'd been teaching um, the whole way through and then I was an academic for a little while. I taught the sociology of gender and sexuality as well as leading courses on ethnicity and race. And I also looked at the impact of technology on society. Um, <laughs> I can just hear your dog. Yeah, I know. I'm sorry. We'll just have to plow through <laughs> that. Okay. That's all right. That's fine. Um, so I, yeah, my, I decided to leave academia um, because it's, uh, the model of academia doesn't really suit my sense of ethics. I think there's quite a lot of problems in the way that we expect junior scholars to hang on to a career that's very difficult at the beginning for many, many years and that there's not enough jobs uh, and, and satisfying positions for junior scholars. So it was really a tough decision. But I ended up uh, going into uh, the public service and uh, spent the first few years working with an interdisciplinary social modelling team. That was a really great experience because it really taught me different applications of sociology, but also how to speak to scientists from the natural and physical sciences, from computer sciences, um, and how to blend their disciplines with mine. And then after that, I have done quite a lot of different things. I tend to be very passion-oriented, uh, very project-based. So I've done things like working uh, I led a research team when working on an investigation um, looking at health and safety issues in the workplace for uh, emergency service workers who had uh, contracted um, high rates of cancer in country Victoria. And I've also worked on um, with a couple of not-for-profit organisations looking at gender equity in STEM as well as gender violence and domestic and family violence against women and their children. And that leads me to the present day where I've come back into public service and now I'm working on a behavioural science um, team. We're looking at um, 
essentially how to use social sciences, behavioural sciences to improve services, programs and social policy. And my areas have been working with vulnerable people as well as the educational and, ed and employment outcomes of um, vocational students, so um, apprentices and trainees. Awesome. Um, so I guess people might have an idea of what sociology is based on what you were just talking about, but if you could give a, um, if you could, a brief explanation of what sociology is. Sure. So, so sociology is the study of society, um, but more specifically, we look at how social structures shape people's sense of belonging as well as experiences of inequality and power. So we're really looking at the nexus between personal biography, history and culture. So there are other social sciences that will look more at the individual in terms of their personality or group interaction interactions. So that's um, an aspect of psychology, for example, whereas we look at individuals in their social context. So we're looking at how societies are organised across time and place and how individuals are making choices um, within that um within that context. So um, most people will have a sense that their lives are very unique, which of course, you know, every individual's understandings of their own lives is going to vary and it's informed by their families, by just their own um, experiences growing up and whatever's happening to them at the time. However, sociologists are able to look at um, the broader social patterns that are that informs the social behaviour of individuals. Um, so, for example, um, we tend to feel like when we're making choices, they're very intimate, they're very personalised, um, but at the same time, sociologists are able to um, show that there are patterns in this behaviour when we're making decisions, whether it's something like our finances or um, our families or our personal health, all of that is socially influenced, even when we're not conscious about these influences. So sociology is about um, unpacking what we take for granted about everyday life. Um, we're looking at things like culture to nonverbal cues to um, looking at how people can um, resist um, social dynamics or how they go along with particular uh, trends um, that are set out by social institutions. And we're also looking at some of those bigger influences like um, institutions like the media, education, as well as social dynamics like class, race, gender, sexuality, and so on. Uh, so like most scientific fields, uh, sociology has historically been predominantly white and male to the exclusion of women of color and to a lesser extent white women um, and also of course racial minorities, sexual minorities um, and so many others. So how has this exclusion um, shaped the field? Um, yeah, it's it, this is a question that um, I and many other minority sociologists think a lot about. So the one of the things that's distinct about sociology 
um, compared to a lot of other sciences is that we're not just founded to observe, document and understand social phenomena. We're actually set up from the beginning to transform society. So our discipline is about driving social change, fighting inequality. Um, so we do see our charge as really being about um, shaping better outcomes for other people. So we've developed these really important ways um, to think about and uh, promote social justice, but at the same time, sociology does suffer from the same afflictions as all the other social sciences, physical and um, and, and and other sciences um, in the natural sciences as well. So um, the fact is that sociology was founded by white men operating from Western European traditions. Um, and um, our founder uh, founders did were very deeply engaged with how um, sociology needed to be applied outside of scholarly research so that we could affect policy and lead public um, change. Um, but at the same time, there's been um, ongoing work since the beginning by black, indigenous and other people of color across the world who took up sociology. Um, however, all our work um, is generally pushed to the periphery of our discipline. So even if we look back um, to the early 1900s with um, the black American sociologist Dubois, who was um, thinking about the double consciousness of black Americans, or even to the present day works of Professor Eileen Morton Robinson, who was looking at Aboriginal women's challenges to white feminism. Um, so we've always had minority sociologists who have challenged the way that we look at social problems, what it means to be a sociologist and how sociology needs to be undertaken. So um, I guess what we do, minority sociologists, um, whether we're you know, ethnic, racial minorities or sexual minorities, gender minorities, we're really trying to uh, question whose interests are being served by the way in which sociology is being positioned. So we're looking at questions like who leads the research, um, what examples are being used in our textbooks and classrooms, who's been cited, who's not been cited, um, whose work is funded and why, how are research and policy questions being framed, um, and so we're really using, I guess, the, so the tools of sociology to question the way in which um, white male-dominated um, frameworks are being used by our colleagues. And um, even though sociologists really place quite a lot of emphasis on reducing inequality, one of the things that, I guess, minority sociologists try to do is to to encourage uh, white sociologists and people in dominant groups to turn the sociological gaze to themselves. So sociologists are very good at doing that for other groups and we tend to not do it very well for ourselves as practitioners. So for example, um, white sociologists will talk about race, but then they won't really examine their own whiteness and um, they see themselves as being uh, fit to lead anti-racism work, even though they don't do that work on themselves. They tend to just think that because they're sociologists and because they mean well that 
um, they're exempt from the very social structures that they're trying to critique. We also have other examples. Um, the literature on sociology of gender is heavily weighted towards cisgender heterosexual sociologists. They largely still talk about gender as a duality, so they don't, for example, um, they say that they're looking at inequality in relationships when actually they're looking at inequality in heterosexual relationships and that distinction is really important, um, you know, because it means that if you, even though sociology um, is set up to look at a spectrum of gender and sexual um, experiences by presenting our work as um, having universal principles, which we, we wouldn't accept of other <laughs> Um, sciences. Um, it means we're ignoring transgender people, agender people and other genderqueer people. So I guess um, there's always been a lot of resistance to the way sociology uh, reproduces some of the problems that we're trying to unpack. And there's a lot of really important work that has always been done and continues to be done by um, minority sociologists that we're trying to bring out towards the centre of our practice. And a lot of us are very um, committed to decolonising sociology, so unpacking how colonial history has impacted the way in which we think about knowledge and our methods. Considering how the field um, has, has changed but has still needs to be decolonised, um, how do you think that sociology has shaped some of the ideas that we have today about race and gender, and then um, also how that can bleed into social policy? Sociology definitely has had an impact on race and gender. Um, and obviously, as, um, as we're going to talk about, there's still um, new perspectives that need to be brought in. But uh, if we look at the work of, um, let's say, if I start with an Australian example, so Jean Martin um, was a sociologist, a woman who um, worked for many years in the field of both race and gender. She looked at the interconnections of um, class, gender and race, and her work was instrumental in taking sociology um, as a tool to move um, our national policies away from forced assimilation and to shaping the policies of multiculturalism that are in place to this day. So her body of work has had a profound impact um, in moving our what used to be very rigid ideas about race relations into um, opening up some of those discussions. So um, maybe some of your listeners may not be aware, but Australia's official immigration policy for since the time of invasion in 1788 um, and, and officially um, implemented in 1901, one of our first laws was um, our immigration policy, which was known as a white Australian policy. So uh, that meant that immigration by people of colour was uh, outlawed and then heavily restricted um, up until 1973. So that's very recent in our history and, and gives you a sense of how um, deeply ingrained colonial understandings of race 
um, and gender have been in place in my country. And it was actually Professor Martin's work, along with several other influential researchers and frontline workers and other practitioners who worked very closely to promote the benefits of diverse cultures. And they really worked hard to get their research in front of policymakers so that they could lead change together. So that's one example of um, where sociology has been able to um, had some influence on race relations. Um, but if I go back to um, Aileen Morton Robinson's work uh, and and other um, Aboriginal women in Australia, they've uh, always done quite a lot of work to also see how these mainstream perspectives, even when they were having benefits for um, white women and other non-Indigenous women, didn't go far enough. Um, and, um, you know, her work was... Uh, very important in putting a challenge to the way in which um, fe feminism actually uh, and Australian feminists, um, sociologists and anthropologists and other researchers um, would take these very Western understandings of race and gender and try and impose them on Indigenous women. Um, very famously, you know, um, throughout the 1980s, uh, where, so generally speaking, mainstream feminism has this idea of that the personal is political, um, which means that every individual case of gender violence is um, a public matter. Um, however, uh, again, with uh, probably good intentions, but very paternalistic intentions, um, white social scientists, um, white feminists, would, um, I guess, want to tell Aboriginal communities how to deal with domestic and family violence without listening to the work of Aboriginal women, the work of Aboriginal um, elders, um, which um, is a very different approach to thinking about uh, issues of gender violence and race. So it's always been really important to, um, to see how we can shift race relations using sociology, but um, making sure that we're always listening to the leadership of Aboriginal um, and Torres Strait Islander women as well as other minority women. Uh, that leads pretty well into the uh, next question that I had for you about methodology. Um, you talked a little bit about um, some sociologists when studying inequality in relationships were choosing to study heterosexual couples, um, white feminists um, imposing um, a Western understanding of gender equality um, onto non-Western people. Um, and so those kinds of things kind of play into methodology a little bit. And that's one of the things that we're really interested in uh, on this podcast and in the magazine um, and how prejudice and bias is often baked into the very methods that scientists use. So um, can you talk a little bit about what methods sociologists use and how this can affect outcomes? Sure. I think um, I'm always interested by other disciplines who have this view that sociology is not objective and that our methods are not as rigorous when that couldn't be further from the truth. And in fact, throughout most of our history, it was quantitative sociological methods that um, 
tended to shape our understandings of the world. Um, there have been a lot of very famous studies that um, have made a very big impact on social policy and in scholarly research and, and in um, in delivering services. One really famous one would be the work by Durkheim looking at um, suicide and he had quantitative data looking at patterns of suicide in different societies and he looked at the influence, the social influences, social forces that um, gave rise to certain patterns in some societies over others. So he looked at the influences of religion, marriage and um, and how these uh, dynamics could shape um, effectively this very intimate um, area of, um, of, of suicidal behaviours. Um, and that was all quantitative methodologies. So for most of our history, um, we've tended to use um, surveys, statistical analyses to study social phenomena. It was only really... Uh, it started to um, develop further in the 1960s, although I should say we've, sociology has also relied on um, ethnographic methods, which are qualitative methods. So that's about going into um, the society that we're trying to study or the, the social group and living amongst them, observing their behaviours, speaking to people. So those are qualitative methodologies that will, have always um, been a part of our history as well. However, in... Um, really from the 1960s to 1980s, um, there was a shift in sociology um, as a lot of particularly women sociologists were trying to get other forms of qualitative um, methods to be recognised as equally valid as quantitative methodologies. And that was very transformational for our discipline. Um, so that was things like using interviews, focus groups and other creative uh, methods where we're getting people to talk about their own lives. Um, that actually, although it's very commonplace now in sociology and we are excellent at using qualitative methodologies, um, even right up to the early 80s, um, it was very hard for sociologists using these methods to um, have them taken seriously because effectively... Um, this was mostly women who were um, trying to use um, conversation and understanding, um, which are more traits that are more associated with femininity, trying to bring those into sociology and trying to advance the idea that um, the individuals we study are their own experts of their experience um, and trying to um, have stories and narrative um, be um, central to the way in which we generate data. Um, so that was really quite an important way in which we, um, sociology has been able to uh, embrace the qualitative methodologies. Some of the other methodologies that I think we still really need to do a lot more work on is to look to, um, let's say, uh, more Indigenous knowledges, Indigenous ways of knowledge, Indigenous methodologies. Um, and for this, I really 
go back to um, my Indigenous colleagues who have done a lot of amazing work to document these um, ways of obtaining data. Um, so, for example, Associate Professor Kathy Butler has done a lot of work to promote um, ways in which we could be bringing in Indigenous methods into the classroom, um, into the field. Um, uh, she's done some lovely work to getting us to consider uh, yarning circles, which is literally just um, a group of people sitting around together and emulating the way in which Aboriginal people um, usually come together to talk through problems. You don't have set questions. Um, obviously, the researcher has a research topic that they're interested in, but it's about letting that group um, have the conversation evolve amongst them um, to follow their stories in whatever way in which they want it, want that journey to go, um, and then to be more um, to be more collaborative in the way in which we develop and analyze and interpret that data. A lot of the times. Um, Indigenous researchers, Indigenous sociologists have um, been very critical of the way in which um, non-Indigenous people go into Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander and other Indigenous communities and take that knowledge, um, put it through a Western lens and then um, publish it. It's non-Indigenous people getting PhDs, getting funding and who get to have conversations with policymakers about um, about Indigenous people rather than with Indigenous people. And so there's um, a lot of methodologies that we need to be, um, that we could be harnessing by having um, Indigenous people lead, you know, having more Indigenous people have um, ongoing and satisfying roles um, within academia, making sure that we've got um, pathways for practice Indigenous practitioners to continue on with their careers in senior roles so that it can help shape what um, methods, um, how methods are developed, how methods are documented, how people are trained in, in these methodologies, and then having more of a um, transformational relationship with Indigenous researchers, so working um, closely with them where they lead the work and um, and indigenous, non-indigenous people are really there to, um, to to let them either step aside, let them lead, or to be in a truly collaborative partnership with them. Um, so there's a lot of really exciting and very um, important ways in which um, we could be developing methods um, and a lot of knowledges that indigenous people have that. Um, Many, many of us are interested in, um, in, in having that leadership come into um, the, the way in which we think about sociological methods more generally. So I want to talk a little bit about how otherness functions in sociology um, and how it functions in your work specifically. Um, and your, your blog is titled The Other Sociologist. So um, I know that it's pretty integral to to what you do? The otherness has always been a theme in my thinking and in my interests from when I was actually still very young. My blog is, um, it always has a central focus on otherness because 
it's a way to push us to always think about who's, um, I guess, how are social relationships and dynamics being um, framed. And so I guess to take a step back, the concept of otherness is a way to think about how different social relationships are set up as a as oppositional forces. There's been a lot of um, work from Simone de Beauvoir to um, Sigmund Bauman and other theorists who have tried to capture the way in which we as a society categorise difference. So um, otherness is about these dichotomies um, where the, the primary reference point, so it might be man, um, is set up as having uh, more power than the secondary um, social identity. So the opposite of man might be woman, for example. And so the, the second uh, reference point is being degraded, um, is being oppressed, um, and that first social reference point is the one that becomes the norm, the one that's seen as universal. You know, so if woman is the other of man, then stranger is the other of native, enemy is the other of friend, it's them versus us. Um, that's what the concept of otherness is really trying to get at. It's an important concept because... <clears throat> Um, it has applications in every social realm we could think about. So um, in the, the work on the sociology of, sociology of gender, for example, otherness allows us to think about how humanity has been defined as being male throughout history. It's men who define um, what it means to be both a man and what it means to be a woman. Um, women don't really have a value other than being um, a reference point for men. Women are regarded as not being autonomous. Women are being defined and differentiated in reference to men. Um, so women are basically not essential. Women are subjects. Women are um, different, less than other to men. And it's important in bringing out ideas of power um, as well. So otherness is about how um, if we have one group, it might be um, in terms of race, um, it might be white people, one uh, group of people who are dominant either in numbers or dominant um, due to their resources and social standing. So their identity um, becomes naturalised, it's just taken for granted, um, but Others, people who don't conform to that um, ideal, who, who can't belong to that dominant group, um, they um, tend to be punished. They tend to be um, seen as um, not worthy of the same respect. Um, and otherness is also important in showing us, you know, who owns material wealth, who owns um, symbolic power in society, so symbolic power, things like um, the benefits that we get through our social networks. Um, so otherness is important in thinking about how um, social institutions reproduce, who is, you know, 
the ideal versus the other. So, you know, media, education, religion um, tend to have particular representations of who is the authority um, and then everybody else is subservient to that ideal group. Um, And in terms of, you know, racism, basically a a group of people who um, will always have more power than other groups, even if they as individuals feel like they're not particularly powerful. And again, in a Western country, um, it might be white people. Um, Certainly that's the case in Australia and United States, UK and other colonial nations. There's a lot of power that comes with being the group that is never going to be defined as the other, as different um, in Australia, which are very reminiscent of ongoing um, characterizations uh, of race in the United States and in the UK. Um, so, for example, we're really seeing this resurgence of nas- white nationalism. Um, we're seeing a senator who uh, tried to bring in a motion of um, where it literally says that they wanted to discuss that it's okay to be white. So trying to, um, and that person is white, <laughs> and almost all of our politicians are white. Um, so there's this resurgence of nationalism, which is trying, it is working through a notion of otherness because they're taking the fact that there are now multiple platforms for minority groups to challenge whiteness. That's seen as a threat to the authority, the power of um, the primary reference group. So that's white people. And even though white people continue to have decision-making power, continue to have all of the resources, including the fact that white people can bring in these motions to discuss, um, to defend um, their whiteness in our parliament, um, this, are, this, this functions through otherness because it's trying to reassert um, oppression that um, white nationalism has always perpetuated and trying to make it normal. Um, So trying to invert this idea of reverse racism, which doesn't actually exist, this idea that um, white people are somehow being disadvantaged because minority groups are using social media and their own uh, publications, their own media to actually question um, narratives of whiteness, that that's somehow taking away um, the power of white people when in fact um, we have such a long way to go, um, our, um, our parliament doesn't reflect the diversity of Australia. We have a very low number of Indigenous people in, um, in parliament and in other decision-making roles. So there's the, the importance of understanding otherness is that there's always a group that uses resources and public dialogue to continually reassert that they are that their reign is natural that their power um, is preordained that that's the way that the only way that we can establish law and order it's the only way that we can have um, stability um, and it's a way of really um, reinforcing oppression um, in 2018, same as um, as it always has been since um, colonial times. 
One of the things that you emphasize in your work is that you approach it from an intersectional feminist point of view. Um, and this is different from the white feminists uh, that you were speaking about earlier. So could you explain a little bit about um, how an intersectional framework um, shapes the research that you do and how that makes your work different from a sociologist who does not adopt that point of view? Yeah, so intersectionality is a concept that was developed by Professor Kimberly Crenshaw, who is a professor of law by training, um, and she is a black American woman. So the concept of intersectionality looks at how gender inequality is impacted by racism and by other types of structural inequalities. It's important to understand that it was first and foremost developed um, by a black woman to better understand the disadvantages that are faced by other black women. Um, in, in that early work um, published in 1989, um, it was about um, industrial relations law and it used a case study of black women in the workplace showing that um, even in the late 1980s, the law was forcing black women to choose um, when they um, sought um, support, that they could only choose either bringing forward a case on the grounds of sexism or on the grounds of racism, when in fact black women face both of those dynamics at the same time. One of the things that often gets confused in the way people now use the term intersectionality is that white people, white women in particular, continue to remove the racial dynamic out of that. So it's really important to always have a focus on both race and gender, and then to also think about um, other issues like sexuality, class, age, location. So intersectionality is really encouraging us to look at problems as being multifaceted. Um, and it's really a framework for thinking about how multiple um, social dynamics have a compounding disadvantage for minority women. Um, so that's not to say that white women can't use intersectionality um, usefully. In fact, um, it would be advantageous for everybody to adopt um, uh, this lens when looking at social problems, but it just means that we also need to interrogate our own race, our own gen gender position and, and other social dynamics when we're thinking about problems. It's interesting actually to watch, um, particularly in social media, when white women will adopt this phrase of being an intersectional feminist, which is a label that doesn't really make sense and that's really rejected by women of colour um, because it's not a label, it's not an identity, it's not something you can crown yourself to be an intersectional feminist. Intersectionality is um, it's a theory that needs to be applied, it's a verb, it's about um, putting, putting those ideas into practice, into the way in which we position our own um, but our own situation as well as how we look at um, uh, social inequality more broadly. It, I mean, an example that um, might resonate with some of your listeners might be what happened 
during the first match for science. There was a lot of um, uh, discussions, public discussions about how the march had been set up um, to really exclude issues of gender and race and, and, um, and other minority groups. And many of us, especially black women, were at the forefront of trying to bring an intersection, intersectionality perspective into the way in which we were thinking about um, social activism for science. And there was a very corrosive pushback from the organisers, from um, elements of the media that were that started to cover it, and also from the broader public who were interested in coming along to the march. And, um, you know, we were uh, hearing from the organisers that um, the focus was going to be science, science not scientists, so trying to compartmentalise the practice of science from the people who do the science and take an intersectionality perspective, this doesn't make any sense because um, the fact is that our differences as scientists, we bring that those differences into the lab, into the classroom, into our interactions with our stakeholders. It's, uh, to use a phrase you used before, it's baked into science that um, individual characteristics are played out um, and in, in terms of the, the social activism around the, the March for Science, there was this idea that um, this quote-unquote identity politics were taking over. Now, that phrase is um, ridiculous. It makes no sense whatsoever because um, the identities of white, cisgender, heterosexual, able-bodied men, um, it's, it's part of, and parcel through the way in which we talk about science, whose research is published, whose research is cited, you know, who are the scientists that most people, including other scientists, are able to name. It's mostly white male cisgender people, able-bodied people. It was really about thinking, well, um, some science practices have really hurt, have hurt minorities. Um, science has um, been, for example, tested on minority populations to detrimental effects. Minority groups have been really harmed, continue to be harmed by um, scientific endeavours that try and push Indigenous people off their land, for example, or where the way in which, you know, the funding model and career trajectory um, also push out um, black people, Indigenous people, other um, minority people, we know from research that um, LGBTQIA um, researchers um, face a lot of um, multiple hurdles in the workplace, in science, um, and all of these things um, bear out in the types of questions that science tries to answer, in the type of answers and approaches that we take in science. And intersectionality is trying to tell us that it's important to understand how um, multiple social structures impact on um, justice outcomes, work, um, and every other aspect of life. Um, I, I did also want to point out that intersectionality is not actually about identities and Crenshaw has always made that point really explicit 
Um, so people who um, think about this as identity politics in the negative way or, who, or people who, um, even, when, even when they're trying to show solidarity, will adopt um, intersectionality as an identity, it doesn't actually make sense because the power of intersectionality as a framework is that it's allowing us to think about social structures and how they lead to very material outcomes, um, like for black women in the workplace who are experiencing multiple forms of disadvantage um, that impacts on their health, that impacts on their job prospects, it impacts on their income, it impacts on their ability to raise complaints when negative things are happening to them, happening to them um, in the way that in which they're being managed. So um, my approach of using intersectionality um, in sociology, although uh, sociology you know, in the way in which we're set up, as I mentioned about social justice, it's very compatible to intersectionality. <clears throat> and sociologists have um, for many decades studied the intersections of um, social oppression um, in Australia. This work began in the 1970s um, and um, built up over the 1980s and 1990s, looking at the intersections of race, gender, class um, for Aboriginal women and for um, migrant background women. Um, that is the work that I draw on for my um, honours thesis and my PhD thesis. Um, it impacts my work because um, rather than looking at these things in isolation, it's important to look at how, let's say, you know, a, a migrant um, background woman in Australia how she experiences um, her family um, is intimately uh, woven into how both their migrant community and border Australian community sets up gender dynamics, sets up um, powers of, of racial relations um, and how um, religion as an institution also has both gender, class and, um, and racial and other dynamics or, um, built in, so it's about having a more complex understanding of um, of social institutions and their impacts on on all people, but especially black women and and other minority women as well. Yeah, no, this actually leads into um, kind of getting to a concrete uh, example of what you do with your work um, in your article. You have to be Anglo and not look like me. Identity and belonging among young Turkish, uh, a young among young women of Turkish descent in Latin American backgrounds in Melbourne, Australia, um, and you look at how racism and social exclusion um, have impacted um, a sense of belonging among the women in this study. Um, so, um, if you could talk a little bit about that study, and we can kind of bring together um, these different threads that we've been talking about. Sure. Um, so that work was um, looking at intersections of identity, but um, looking at the the social structures, social structural influences on identity and belonging, as you mentioned. I guess just quickly, um, I was looking, as you mentioned, at, mon at migrant minority women. People sometimes have a bit of a difficult time understanding the concept of ethnicity and, and how it applies to different groups. People should know that everybody has ethnicity. It's interesting when people say 
when they talk about ethnic food or ethnic people, everybody has ethnicity. So ethnicity is just a concept that um, it talks about how people understand concepts like culture, ancestry, and what they do in their daily lives in um, in connection to um, their cultural heritage or or their cultural um, identification. So I was looking at how migrant background minority women, um, who, um, all of whom were women of colour. So there were, most of them had, you know, some of them had been born, a lot of them had been born in Australia, some of them had come to Australia from a young age, but that they had all spent their formative years in Australia. And the work was really looking at how do these women understand their connection to their migrant communities and the broader Australian society through a concept of diaspora. So diaspora is a, the idea about how people can feel connected to um, a homeland <clears throat> that's far away from <clears throat> where they currently live and how um, a lot of people who um, have multiple homelands, um, whether they're symbolic or ancestral or, or it's to do with their family, having families still living in other countries, how do those transnational relationships influence their ideas about what it means to belong to the place where they live currently? So I set out to look at um, Latin American women from various different Central and South American origins. All of them had a Catholic background. Um, and I also looked at Turkish Muslim women. And all of them, all of them had a very strong connection, um, except for one, to their migrant communities. All of them were shaped by their experiences, not only here, but when they traveled back to their families of origin. I developed a typology to look at how they made sense of their social influences on their identity. Um, so some women, um, a lot of the women actually tended to fall into a spectrum of either saying that they were not Australian. Most of them um, had a hybrid identity, saying that they were partly Australian, and only one woman said that she was only Australian and she rejected her Chilean origin. That came about as a relationship to what was happening to them in Australia. So women who, all of the women had experienced racism, so both at the interpersonal level and also overt discrimination. So um, that was things like being yelled at, um, having, you know, racial um, slurs told to them at school, from um, at work, being followed up followed around by police, being spat on as I walked on, walked down the street. So this sort of interpersonal and very negative interpersonal experience that, that happened on a daily basis in some way or another. And they also had to manage those experiences of racism with more yeah, overt forms of the way in which they were mistreated by teachers or at work, which are more um, I guess, examples of institutional um, discrimination. Some of the women, in fact, most of the women felt like they couldn't really call themselves Australian because most people didn't see them as Australian. So even though they recognised that they had been born here or 
even though they recognised that they had a strong affinity to Australia and and loved what Australia represents. Um, They felt that because other people didn't see them as Australian because they quote-unquote didn't look Australian, they really had um, a difficult time reconciling that they could simply just be Australian because no one accepts them as just being Australian. So the idea of um, rejecting Australian identity for some of the women, it was about the discrimination they faced meant that even though they were taking influences from Australia, they didn't want to have to constantly deal with having their identity second-guessed. So it's this idea of where are you you from? Where are your parents from? You know, they were constantly being berated about their identity, so they tended to reject Australian identity. But most of them had this hybrid identity of being partly Australian. And those women said that even though other people didn't see them as Australian because they weren't white, they still um, wanted to call themselves Australian. Um, And in particular, they really drew on their influences from gender. So they saw that Australia has a commitment to egalitarianism. Um, They thought that Australia had taught them not to accept gender inequality. They brought that to their migrant community. So they um, were constantly having discussions and challenges with their parents, with their um, community members, trying to get them to really support gender equality. And of course, they faced a lot of gender inequality as um, migrant women in uh, outside of their migrant community. So um, that constant challenge of um, gender inequality was one of the things that they um, were drawing heavily on from more of what they called their Australian side. And um, then there was the one woman I mentioned who, because she basically rejected Chilean culture um, because of the gender inequality in her migrant community, particularly after she travelled overseas, um, but she was the only one. And the interesting thing about you know diaspora um, and intersections of different um, intersectionality really plays out interestingly when they would travel back to their migrant communities um, overseas. So over there they weren't treated as being, you know, Turkish or Salvadoran or um, Peruvian. Uh, um, Overseas people, even though they looked like everybody else, people recognised that they weren't like everybody else. They had different ideas. Um, They spoke differently. They dressed differently. Their outlook was different. And overseas they tended to say I'm Australian um, which is something that and and people would just accept it (laughs) whereas here they really felt like they couldn't really say that they were Australian because they got questioned so much. The intersectionality dimension is because of these multiple experiences of gender inequality and racial inequality and um, religious inequality um, especially for the Turkish Muslim women who were facing um, a lot of scrutiny and a lot of xenophobia Um, uh, my research was conducted um, right after 9-11. So these experiences of um, multiple inequalities, I guess, um, influenced the way that they thought about their, um, not just their present day reality, but how they started to think about, you know, um, the future decisions that they would make. And um, it was really this idea of multiculturalism that helped them to deal with all these different inequalities. Um, So they had this notion that multiculturalism is, it should be the norm, even though they recognised that white Australian people didn't live up to the ideals. They always came back to this perception that 
everybody can be Australian and that the only sort of um, if, if anybody's going to question what it means to be Australian and what, it, what multiculturalism is, they said it was Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, um, but non-Indigenous people had no claim to the Australian identity and that multiculturalism should really be a way to promote harmony. And they often use that in arguments with other people. Um, and it helped them to centre and to work out, um, work through the multiple forms of disadvantage that they were facing in their daily lives. I guess um, it brings together the notions of otherness and intersectionality because um, these were women whose daily experience was of being othered. They were seen as different, whether it was with their migrant communities or with the broader Australian society. They were constantly managing multiple forms of difference um, and trying to really challenge other people's expectations of um, the way in which they presented themselves, the way in which they thought about themselves, the way in which they connected with other people. Um, so otherness comes through because um, they were being set up as the other, um, regardless of which group um, they were being referenced against and really pushing back against that. Um, because they had multiple experiences of disadvantage, they could see that you don't have to choose one or the other they had this sense of hybridity, this sense that you can bring in lots of different influences from different places. The idea that you can recognise that, um, you know, even as migrant women, what they faced um, was nothing compared to what Indigenous women go through. Um, and that gave them a sense of a sense of responsibility to fight for what they thought was right, which um, for them it was to use multiculturalism as an argument um, to argue their place in society. Um, so intersectionality is a way for us to make sense of how um, multiple forms of inequality have a real impact on the everyday lived experience of different groups. And also to, um, rather than force these groups to focus on one issue or another to be really liberal in um, understanding how racism isn't just about race, it's also about, you know, sexualized racism, R religious um, discrimination impacts Muslim women very differently than, say, a Uruguayan woman who was raised Catholic, who is a woman of colour, um, because they've got that Christian background, that's not necessarily such a big um, sense of difference um, to say a woman of colour who's Turkish um, and, and is Muslim. So my work um, with migrant women and my work since has really been to uh, amplify the experiences of minorities, especially minority women um, in this case, to see how they navigate the world, how they navigate um, discrimination and also how they have a sense of autonomy um, even with lots of discrimination bearing down on them from multiple angles and how they how they make sense of that and how they um, keep going despite the barriers that are placed there and that they will always resist even when they you know the act of rejecting Australian identity or the act of embracing um, a partly Australian identity, these are forms of resistance against 
multiple disadvantages and it's important to um, not just hear and document these types of perspectives but also to think about how can that help us do research better how can that help us to improve social services how can it help us to make better policies and make better decisions um, instead of um, always coming at social problems from a very tunnel vision perspective All right, that's going to do it for us. Um, Be sure that you check out Zuleika's website, theothersociologist.com, and give her a follow on Twitter at theothersociologist. And thanks for listening. Be sure that you subscribe to the Lady Science Podcast to catch our next bonus episode in the series. 